There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Being prepared is all about having the right tools. The OnX off-road map and navigation app is the best fully functional GPS when you're out of service. Offline maps allow you to access all interactive land and trail data and custom map markups when you're out of service. Your phone's internal GPS gives you full navigation capabilities offline, so you'll always know where you are and how to get home safely. Go to onxmaps.com and use code MEATEATER to get 20% off your membership today. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. All right. Jimmy Doran's here. Can we say what you do? <laughs> yeah, I'm the pizza guy. <laughs> Jimmy, you have the pizza. Any, que- <laughs> any questions that come up? Now, Jimmy was just being a good friend and dropped by, and now here he is. <laughs> Sitting in. Sitting in. Yeah, we ate some fantastic pizza. Oh, did we ever, man? Well, you're welcome. What's um, it called? It's called Belltown Pizza, downtown Seattle. Belltown. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What Jimmy does is all that pepperoni and all that. Every it's all wolf meat. That's it. It's ground up. He grounds up his own wolf meat. <laughs> <laughs> Just don't call the health department on me. <laughs> so any pizza any pizza questions anyone here has defer them over to to, to mr dorn and also you, you had a you had a big year i had a fantastic year big year very big year yeah best ever so i'm relatively new hunter but definitely this year was took the cake i'm a little worried next oh, year oh not in pizza sales no no just american elbow grease man just running his business getting out there mixing it up getting a lot of a lot of excellent big game hunts. Yes, very good. It's very fortunate. Because he wears a meat eater t-shirt. That's it. The meat eater t-shirt is my lucky charm. Or he carries it in his backpack and he's kind enough to take a photo of himself uh, with it. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> it depends on how bad it stinks on day four. <laughs> no, tearing it up. Yeah, no, mule fantastic. Deer, elk. Yeah, two mule deer and an elk. Uh, one uh, mule deer in central Oregon, elk in the Missouri River Breaks, Montana, and uh, then shot a really nice elk uh, by fossil in uh, central Oregon. Great stuff. Yep. Yeah. Came. A lot of, and then you got some doves. Yeah, we shot a few doves. You know, um, 
We had some of those doves for Thanksgiving dinner. Yes, you did. You're welcome. Some people kept calling them little turkeys. Little turkeys, huh? Because we did them whole. Right. Because my wife always complains at Thanksgiving because seldom do we eat turkey on Thanksgiving. Really? Yeah, because it's like we just like cook. Like you, have, you save up like good stuff. Mm-hmm. So this year for Thanksgiving, we had hooligans or candlefish, king salmon, halibut, uh, moose, some elk meat. And morning doves. Yeah. And because people like gripe, my brother Matt and my wife bitch about the lack of turkey. <laughs> okay. So I plucked those morning doves and cooked them like little mini turkeys. And they did look like little mini turkeys, man. It was cute. But everybody got their own little turkey. Really? Yeah. Did that appease their turkey? Yeah. Needs? It was a step in the right direction. And normally I don't even do the <laughs> normal sides. Like last year we did what's called a mixed boil. You know, which is like all kind of boiled vegetables. and But this year we add all the normal sides. Matter of fact, you know that mashed potato we were eating last night? Mm-hmm. That shit's from Thanksgiving. That's old. Still. It was good. So that was just ma- just like a creamed mashed sweet yams, potato. Mashed yams. But I mean, think of how old that is. How long ago was Thanksgiving? Just been sitting in my fridge. A couple of weeks. You don't feel sick at all, do you? Not yet. It'll kick in. (laughs) You'll be heading for the door. Hey, you you know a lot. Here's this. I'm I'm glad you're here. Um, Is that is mashed potatoes like pretty stable? I would say it would last a while. When I was in college, I'd eat it a couple weeks in. I don't know. Now it'd be about a week, probably. When you're because you're in the commercial food business, are you um? Are the guidelines like pro- the guidelines are probably like ridiculously safe, right? They are. It's proper holding temperature, stuff like that, proper refrigeration, making sure, you know, you don't want to get in. Does it feel extreme or does it feel reasonable? It feels totally reasonable. Does it? Yeah. Because I you can't remember make half the town sick. Something <laughs> with potatoes. When I worked at a restaurant to get a, get a ski pass for a while, we served baked potatoes. They were wrapped in aluminum foil and there was a strict hard fast rule that you could not take those potatoes home like they're very worried about that and maybe because it was just because the aluminum foil would hold it in that like danger zone too long oh yeah could be and what is it that you would get from a potato like that i have no idea i don't know case is spending a lot of time in the bathroom other than yeah. that i'm not really sure yeah, i don't know what you give potatoes <laughs> well, my, oh go ahead i was just gonna say i read something not too long ago about potato salad because everybody thinks well, that's because that, it's got mayo and shit in it. No, it's not the mayo. It's oh. the potatoes. It's oh, actually, really? yeah. Well, there you go. In the really? sun, potatoes grow bacteria really quickly, especially combined with the mayo. And so it's the potatoes that are the problem, not the mayo itself. Oh, no shit. Yeah, I always thought it was the mayo too. Of course it's mayo because that stuff gets nasty, but it's the potatoes. Hmm. There you go. You are going to get sick from those mashed, those weeks old mashed potatoes. <laughs> that was weighing in with the, the voice of reason on taters was uh, Ron. Give us your last name. How you su- sound it out? Yeah, it's Roarball. Roar I struggle with that one. That's all right. Roarball. Everyone struggles with it. You got it. You nailed it. On the on the front of your new book, Traditional Bow Hunter's Path, that's not a King of the Mountain wool pants you're wearing, is it? No, it's not King of the Mountain. You remember that company? Yeah, I love King of the Mountain stuff. I have a King of the Mountain vest. Dude, Are they still yeah, around? I love it. When that shit came out, I was just, I couldn't, I was so paralyzed by jealousy. When that catalog came out and I was a young lad, I wanted the Trapper wool pullover. Oh, and yeah. I'd look at that price tag, 350 at the time. 
Yeah, wow. Which was in the eighties. Oh yeah. It was super which expensive. Is thousands now. Yeah. I remember being like, what it must be magical. But that was you the, must be able to fly. That stuff was the <laughs> highest quality close weave wool, you know, for the day. I mean that stuff was great. But it was met its selling point was that you could machine wash it. Yeah. So then I remember Cabela's came out with a knockoff. They came out with a knockoff and I bought some of that shit and took it on a hunt. And after it got it wet a couple of times, it was like I was wearing a uh, Tights. spandex yeah look like i was in a shakespeare play yeah <laughs> <laughs> because it just whatever happened hadn't happened you know and then you'd, you'd get where you didn't want to wash them because it's just going to make them worse yep. so then pretty soon they're just like when you walk they sort of crackle because of like dried blood on the knees and shit you know but those are the you like them yours didn't shrink too bad in that picture no not too bad i actually have a, a wool coat that i love that was made by a company called uh Wolf Woolens or something like that. I don't, I don't know what that. it was. Same thing happened. I wore it in the rain. It shrunk. It got really small. You know, one of those deals you stick your arms out and the sleeves come up to here. I loved it so much. I took it in my in my shed and I made a frame out of two by fours and I hung cement blocks off of it. Stretched and it back wet out. It, wetted it. They kept wetting it again and trying to get it. Never worked. Never got it right. Never got it back. It was all misshapen and screwed up and I gave it to a friend. If someone came in your shed, they'd think you were up to some weird devil oh, stuff, yeah, man. No doubt about like you're doing it. some weird avenue. Time, no, but time bricks. That, to- I've been in that same situation with a pair of King of the Mountain. I think they were called the Bun Light pants. Yep. I had spent, oh, I had God, spent a I bunch a of money of on them as a hunting guide, you know, and had to have the best. And uh, same thing, I washed them, and I don't know if the no, I did cold wash. I mean, that's what you have to do. And even that, just like the, the, the complete saturation of that wool, I put them on the next time and I was a ballerina, you know? It's just like, what? And yeah. I called them and they're like, yeah, you need to re-wet them and then slowly stretch them. But when it happened, when I was trying, I just, you know, overpowered it, I guess, and busted the seam that kind of go, that's like between the waistline and your pocket and just ripped them right across. So yeah. they ended up fixing them for me for free. But they couldn't stretch them back out. Well, somehow they got to be back to normal size. I don't know if I just wore them back in normal fitting, but that was 10 years ago, and I haven't washed them since. Yeah. You guys want to see a good segue? You ready for a big segue, Jimmy? I'm in. Um, as a traditional bow hunter, I imagine you hunting wool a lot, huh, Ron? Yeah, I do love wool. <laughs> <laughs> of course. That's a great segue. <laughs> I like wool. I like fleece. Because you got to be quiet. got to be gotta get close. And so you got to be quiet. Wool like is, what's close? Like, okay, traditional bow hunting. Now that's recurving longbow. Recurving longbow, yep. Let me start. I, I do want to get back to being real close and real quiet and all that. But how, like, I don't understand. How is a recurve traditional? Because recurves, like a longbow, right? You have culture. So they, they feel that, correct me if I'm wrong, but the bow and arrow in North America is a technology that's maybe four or 5,000 years old. Yeah, that's right. And people were still shooting longbows up to the moment when they got their hands on firearms. When, whoever was using a recurve? Like, who made the recurve? Yeah, you have to be careful of the term traditional, I think, because it, you know, it's just taken on its whole own life. And so when I think of traditional bow hunting and traditional archery, it's really kind of this generalization of everything pre-compound. Yeah, that's, so what, that's what it's come to mean. Yeah, so it's really, I mean, for me especially, I think of it as post-war era, you know, 1940s through, you know, the late 60s, you know, when the compound came into being. You know, that's really when traditional archery took off and, and became really popular. I don't think traditional is meant it to kind of go back to primitive. as a response to the compound. 
No, no. I think it, it took off as a response era. to post-war era. Did I say oh, pre- No, no. You said post-war. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah. 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 I mean, I think, you know, people coming back from being overseas, from being in the war. I mean, this phenomenon is true for hunting in general, but, you know, for archery especially, coming back and being able to pick up a bow, you know, a lot of the states were just legalizing, you know, yep. seasons for archery at that time. Archery was super popular. There was, I mean, not just bow hunting, but, you know, there were archery lanes in the cities. There was, you know, all kinds of, of uh, archery competitions. Yeah, in the 50s, my old man belonged to the Chicago Bowman. Yeah, exactly. And it was, it was, you know, like, and then Pope and Young was kind of a thing, and they were pushing for seasons, but he was a recurve hunter. But, like, a recurve isn't a throwback. Like, but who did invent the recurve? So, I mean, recurve goes back to probably some Asiatic styles of bows, gotcha. you know, where there's a lot of, um, you know, there's a lot of reflex and deflex in the limb, um, some recurving of the limbs, you know, to get, get static tips in some cases. You know, you've, you've seen these bows, uh, you know, some of them made out of, of bone and sinew, horn and sinew. Uh, you know, it's fantastic. Yeah. But it was never like an American, it was never, there's like no American indigenous cultures that were shooting recurve bows. Not that I can think of. Probably the, the earliest I can think of was the bowyer for the Bear Archery Company. Fred Bear's bowyer was Nels Grumley. Mm-hmm. And he used to build a static re- recurves on the end of what you might otherwise look at and think was a longbow. Gotcha. You know, it's got these static tips on them. Now, uh, what? so you do your hunting primarily the recurve. Recurve and longbow. You do use both. Yeah, I killed uh, two good bucks this year, one with a longbow, one with a recurve. Why do you bounce back and forth? Because oh, I'm just an idiot. Um, you know, it's no different than guns or whatever. You know, you just you have a bunch of stuff you like to play with and different setups. And one of the things I love about traditional archery is just each bow, each bow is different. Every yeah. piece of wood is different. Every, you know, whoever made it has put their own their own touch on it. You know, there's a lot of craftsmanship that, that goes into it. And so everyone is different. It's just like, you know, going hunting with a different buddy every time you go out. Now, did you... Did you used to you cool so far, Jimmy, on all um, this? Absolutely. Yeah. Then we've now, got about forty <laughs> questions, it seems like. <laughs> did you uh did you did you get into it as a response to like experiences rifle hunting or were you just were you just a bow hunter? Flat out. Your old man was a rifle hunter. Yeah, no, I grew up with a rifle and a muzzle loader. Yeah. I hunted mostly uh, you know, fifty caliber flintlock, two forty three, two seventy. Um and I got into, I had a bow, you know, growing up as a kid, I had uh, this little fiberglass bow that a neighbor gave me and I loved it, man. I went everywhere with that thing. I just couldn't be separated from it. I used to shoot in our field and we had this big creek by our house and I'd go out there and, you know, fling arrows at muskrats and stuff. And then I just kind of got away from it because my family wasn't into bow hunting. We were, you know, we were into gun hunting and we used to go to our cabin in Pennsylvania and gun hunt and, and I loved it. And then, uh, you know, some point in college, I, I went back to the compound bow and I started hunting with a compound bow a little bit. Just to take advantage of the seasons. Yeah, just take advantage of the seasons. And I, I did like to bow hunt. It yeah. wasn't like I didn't like it or anything. I just, you know, I just had gotten away from it. And then, you know, I tell this story in the book. I, you know, I ended up in the hospital. I fell down a set of steps and, you know, messed up my back a little bit. And then I killed a deer, killed a small buck. And I tried to whale him over a fence, you know, kind of one of these clean and jerk moves. It was a woven wire fence. And I just totally wrenched my back, ruptured a disc in my back and really messed up. Deer hunting injury. Deer hunting injury. Or weightlifting yeah. injury. Ended up in the hospital in traction. And, uh, oh, was that right, really? Yeah, my, my girlfriend at the time. Was it a nice buck? <laughs> yeah, I hope so. <laughs> From that standpoint, it was not worth it. 
she brought me this grocery bag full of magazines. And one of the magazines in that bag was Traditional Bowhunter. It was a 1993 issue. Uh-huh. And I pulled that thing out and I started reading it. And it was like, it just lit a fire. And you write for that magazine. I, now I write for the magazine, yeah. I just oh, could shit. not stop reading that magazine. I read it over and over, laying in the hospital, you know, legs pulled up in ropes. And when I left, I was like, this, this is for me. This is what I want to do. And I've just been doing it ever since. Love it. Yeah, th- that's the thing about, uh, like, Bohun. My relationship with Bohun was always that, along with most people I grew up with, you just hung with the bow because it let you, gave you much l- more hunting seasons. You know, like in Michigan where I grew up, the general firearms 10 days long. If you bow hunted, you started bow hunting for deer October 1, you hunted up to the November, the mid-November rifle season, then the woods fills up with dudes, right? It gets chaotic, that thing ends, and then you bow hunted again for another month and a half. Yeah, I mean, you just you like triple you could, or quadruple your oh, season. Yeah, it's always out yeah. in the woods. But it was that. But it was never like, um, you know. You, I always appreciated the challenge of bow hunting, but it was just a thing. Like I like to hunt. There was a bow season, therefore, you know, you hunted with a bow. But I was never looking to then go. And this might not be the word you use, but I was never looking to then go handicap myself by having a self-imposed limit on the technology. Yeah, yeah. I think there's a couple of things. I mean. You know, self-imposing yourself to something that's more primitive can come in, you know, you can do that for a lot of reasons. So, you know, somebody who picks up a rifle might self-impose some trophy quality. You know, I'm only going to kill a 140-inch whitetail or, you know, I want to kill a big 6 by 6 bull elk. You know, for me, I didn't have a ton of money, you know, when I started out doing this. I couldn't really travel as much as I wanted to to go hunt. And so self-imposing traditional archery on myself, and I've, I've only hunted with a gun maybe three times in the last 25 years. No shit. So you just yeah. don't do it anymore. Yeah, I don't do it anymore. I hunt only, no only with traditional either. bow. Nothing. No. And, those, and the times I have hunted, it's been with a, with a flintlock, and I have taken a couple of deer with that. But, uh, you know, it's, for me, it's all been recurve and longbow since then. But it's that, that's the... That's how I'm self-imposing my, that's where I'm getting the new challenge from. Yeah, so instead, I'm with you. instead of killing something bigger, you know, I'm interested in getting closer and, and making my equipment more primitive so that, you know, I get that same kind of rush and that same kind of challenge and experience. You know, you can only shoot so many whitetail does, you know, before he's like, yeah, I'm going to try something a little different. Maybe I'll, you know, longbow and wooden arrows. It's another way to kind of get at this. What's your effective range? You, you know, with each, with each set of tackle you're using there, like what's a, what's a, not pushing it, but you know, a good reasonable shot. 20 yards. Is that right? You're nice and close. Yeah. 20 yards is, is, you know, where I like to be. I've shot, you know, white tails out to a little over 30. I shot a, a clip springer in Africa at over 30, you know, but generally 20 yards. And I know some guys who like the, you know, they set up their ground blinds or tree stands or whatever for the closest shot they can with something like a longbow. They want to be 10 yards, 12 yards. I've actually found that, that that's worse for me. Because when you have that animal on top of you, I mean, you have no room for air. Mm. You're going to get winded. You're going to, you were talking about wool clothing and being quiet. You know, the brush. Yeah, getting the damn arrow pulled back. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Just, just getting to full draw is impossible. And so I've learned that for me, about 18 yards is where I want to be. You know, you can start getting above 18. Weird stuff can happen. But at 18, that's pretty good. You know? What's an example of weird stuff that can happen? Well, deer can jump the string. Okay. You know, you can screw up a shot pretty quick at 35 yards with a, you know, with a traditional bow. I mean, I read. 
regularly practice out to 45, you know, and I can, I can hit the, you know, the vital zone on a, on a 3D target, you know, easily at 35 again and again and again. But that's not a live animal. Yeah. That's not an animal that can jump and move. Yeah, it's like the compound shooter who likes to shoot, who will fling arrows at 90, but then he's deadly at 45. Yeah, you know? Exactly. Yeah. It, it's also a whole different ball game when you're cold. When you're nervous, you know, I talk a lot about, you know, performance anxiety or buck fever in this book because I think it, it, it probably is the reason. Performance for anxiety. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> Not that kind of performance. No, it's so like hard it. to replicate no, like that, that in uh, practice. Yeah. In training. I'm kidding. It's you know, I used to always have guys at the range when we'd have hunters coming in. We'd go and you know shoot a couple shots. I'd be like, all right, your gun's good. Now, run 50 yards. Turn around. Sprint back. Grab your rifle and then off your knee, you know, let's see what your group looks like at 100. Yeah, big difference, you know. Those are like, I don't know any other way to. Yeah, what's your take on it? You can't prep for it or do you think you can prep for it? You can't prep for it. and I, Well, you can prep for it, but I think it's even worse with traditional archery gear because if you're shooting a compound or a rifle, you've got a sight. You know, so let's just talk compounds. You know, you've got a sight pin and you've got a peep. Yeah. And not only are they tools for you to, you know, to hit your target, you know, to line up and hit what you want to hit, but they're, it's a support system. It gives your brain a set of, you know, it's a mechanism that you know what to do. You're going to draw that bow. You're going to line up the pin and the peep. You're going to put the pin on where you want to hit, and you're going to release your arrow. With, without sights, which is the way most guys shoot long bows and recurves, there's none of that. So you have to force your brain, you know, and your whole body with, you know, with all the adrenaline pumping through you. Come to full draw, pick a spot, you know, on the animal, just find some, a ripple of muscle, a, you know, whatever it is, a little dapple of sunlight, and look at that spot and stare it down and come to full draw and release. And there's just no support mechanism. And it's so easy to fall apart. Yeah. It's really easy to just not, I mean, you know, you just boom and the arrow's gone and, you know, it's nowhere near the animal you're trying to hit. So you talk about, um, those funny mentions like the ripple of muscle or sunlight. You're talking about being not just, I'm going to hit the deer or not just that I'm going to hit the rib area, but you're like, I'm going to hit that that thing. I'm going to hit that little hair that's out of place right there. Yeah, I'm it's the that, whole that, aim that, small, that miss little, small. little like burdock or whatever on his it, side. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you have to. And it's so hard. I mean, you have to train yourself to do that. Because you don't, I mean, when that big buck comes in or any animal comes in, you know, you're just, your blood is pumping. You're, you're not thinking right. And being able to really slow yourself down and say, pick a spot is so important. When right. I was a kid, my old man would put stickers on our bows and the sticker said, stay calm, pick a spot. Exactly. Now that you remember, not that you would remember to read the son bitch sticker, <laughs> but it was just on there, you know, and it was Ingrained. like this reminder. But I remember like the first year I missed the bow, it was, you know, feet from the base of the tree. And you couldn't imagine, like you couldn't, like how could you miss that? You can. <laughs> but then you pull, I remember like those first times bow hunting, I was 12 when I missed my first year of the bow. And, you know, you pull back and then you think about it, like you, you couldn't even, there was no recollection of, doing any of the things you're supposed to do. It was just like, there's a deer and you pull back and let go. Yeah, and I, I think a lot of that's adrenaline too. I think it's why we forget, you know, you, you take a shot and you don't even remember where the animal went. You don't remember seeing the arrow. You don't remember the shot. I think your body is just so overloaded on adrenaline that you just can't, your, your mind's just out of whack. Yeah. I, mean, I talk about this in the book too, but you know, there's lots of, of you know, studies with humans looking at multitasking and we really suck at multitasking. You know, you can, you can type an email and eat your lunch, 
but try to type an email and talk on the phone at the same time. I mean, it's really hard to do that, you know, because you're using those same kind of mental capacities, those same kinds of things in your brain. You know, you're, you're, you make those decisions with the, the prefrontal cortex of the brain. Each side is responsible for, for making all kinds of decisions when you're multitasking. And I, for me, you know, I just have to break the whole shot sequence down into to steps. And so when I see an animal and I decide I'm going to shoot, I have this whole thing I do in my head where, you know, I pick a spot, bow arm, my bow arm goes in a certain position, and I draw to my first anchor where I, my, my hand comes to rest under my cheekbone, and then I reaffirm my spot. I'm like, all right, I'm on, I'm on my spot. I'm still on my spot. And then I just keep pulling until I hit my second anchor, and boom, the arrow's away. And you're literally running through a checklist in your head. Kind of. That's what I do when I practice, when I'm actually hunting. Not The checklist doesn't always come because things are happening so fast. But if The it's, actions come. The actions come. They're just, they're burned into your brain. You know, the muscle memory's there, the, you know, it's all in your head and you just kind of do it. But if I don't have that system, you know, I found this, found this out the hard way. I'm just, I'll fall apart. You know, I, I won't make a good shot. Yeah. But with the system, I'm good, I, you know. So now when you aim, I know you talk about this in the, in, in the book, you talk about like, I think th what, what's the term, like point, like when you aim off the point of the arrow? What's yeah, the gap word? shooting? Gap yeah, shooting. that's right, gap yeah. Shooting, yeah. My brother's recurve shooter and hunter. And he, he yeah, shoots he gap. Talk, well, he talks about it. I feel like he does. Yeah, gap, gap's deadly. I don't, I don't really, I kind of gap It's shoot. a ranging system, right? It is. And, and so for me, you know, I have this whole system where I come to my first anchor on my face and then I keep drawing the string until the cock feather hits my nose. And that's my cue to release. It's like a little psychological trigger. Once gotcha. that thing hits, boom, I'm gone. And that out to about 27, 28 yards, I'm just looking at a spot. I'm just looking at something I want to hit. But beyond about 27 or 28 yards, I can't help but see the tip of my arrow mm. in my vision because, you know, I'm coming up like this. And so the arrow is coming up into my field of view. And so at that point, I used to try to ignore it. But over the years, I've learned, why not use it? Just use it as an aiming system. So once I get to that distance, then I can hold the arrow right on where I want to hit. Yep. And if I'm further than that, if I'm 35, then I'm holding the tip of the arrow just, a, you know, a couple inches above where I want to be and so on out, you know, out to 40, 50 yards. Now, does your point of aim uh, differ using traditional gear over compound placement? Like, I imagine you get real afraid of the shoulder blade. Oh, yeah, yeah you do. Like, shoulder blade's instant death. Not, not for the deer, but instant death for you as the archer. But I don't yeah. think, and not any more so with traditional gear versus compound gear. Well, if well, yeah, I mean, you got to have way, there has to be a hell of a lot less energy out of a longbow than out of a souped up compound. Yeah, there is. And it, some of it depends on your, your broadhead too. You know, if you're shooting a, a nice two blade broadhead, I certainly don't want to shoot the shoulder. But if you do by accident, you can often penetrate the shoulder and get the blade, in. but not the bone proper. Yeah, the blade, but not the action, not the not the yeah. femur or anything. So you can punch through the blade. You can with a two point. You can like shoot uh, thirty yards or whatever, twenty yards. You could go. You could put like a wooden arrow through that shoulder blade and get into the vitals. You can. I don't recommend it, but yeah, yeah you can absolutely do it. Do you aim like uh, usually aiming for the crease, or you usually back a couple ribs just to give yourself room to play? Well, I mean, you know the game. I mean, you don't want to go back too many ribs because then if the animal, you know, if he gets 
jumping the string a little yeah, bit yeah, forward yeah. or backward, then you're you know, getting into the punch. Or if you just kind of screw up a little bit, you're getting into the punch. So I pretty much you know, come up the back of the leg and then come you know, maybe a couple of inches back on the ribs, yep. about dead center of the body is where I want to be. Hey, man, after years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there is always a catch. So when I heard that for a limited time, all Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, well, what's the catch? But it turns out there isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, Go to mintmobile.com slash meat eater. That's mintmobile.com slash meat eater. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash meat eater. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 per month. New customers on first three month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Man, I'm just coming back uh, not too long ago from youth turkey season in Wisconsin. Now, last year at youth turkey season, it rained and snowed the whole time. This year at youth turkey season, it was in the 70s and even up to 80. So me and my kids are pouring it to it. And after a while, I realized I didn't drink anything all day, and they haven't drank anything all day. Well, that's why it's important to get hydrated and have something you're going to like to help you encourage you to get hydrated. doesn't matter. Outdoor events, turkey hunting, playing sports, beach days, mountain adventures. Summer requires extraordinary hydration that's built for everyday dehydrating moments. With three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, plus eight vitamins and nutrients in a single stick, it's clear why Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. Tear, pour, live more. One stick plus 16 ounces of water hydrates better than water alone. I'll say that again. Hydrates better than water alone. Turn your ordinary water into extraordinary hydration with Liquid IV. Get 20% off your first order of Liquid IV when you go to liquidiv.com and you use code MEATEATER at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code MEATEATER at liquidiv.com. This show is brought to you in part by BetterHelp. Now, we all carry around different stressors. Big ones, little ones. When you keep these things bottled up, it can start to affect you in a very negative way. Well, therapy is a great space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. Like, figure it out. That means figure it out with someone who's impartial, who's able to sit down and hear what you have to say and think it through with you. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Listen, there's no there's no such thing. It's like you're not so tough. You're not so tough that it doesn't do you some good to talk to somebody now and then about what's on your mind, okay? Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash eater today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash eater. And then do you ever take um, 
Do you just shoot broadside? No, I like quartering away. Yeah, but I mean, you never do like face on shots, so that's just too hard. You knew what I did this year, didn't you? I can tell by the way you're looking. No, no, I don't know what you did this I, year. I, I shot my first ever deer this year, quartering on in brisket. Like oh. Coming in, you know, like yeah. you know, a shot that a rifle hunter or a combat wouldn't hunter think would, about. wouldn't think about. But you just, you just don't do it with traditional gear. And I've never done it. Why and, wouldn't you do it with traditional gear? Because you just can't get the, you know, there's, you just have a little pocket in there where you can get to the vitals and there's just a lot of meat and a lot of bone in there to penetrate. And with the compounds, you can just kind of, you've got the kinetic energy to punch it through there. And so it's a still not a great shot with a compound, but it's one that guys do. And with a rifle, it's, you know, it's, it's an easy shot. But with a traditional bow, it's, you know, a lot of guys probably listening to this podcast are shaking their heads, you know, you know why the hell would he do that? You know, it's really a no-no kind of a shot. But I've been doing this a long time I had a shot at a good buck. He was standing there. I kept looking at that spot, looking at that spot. I was calm, and I thought, I can do that. I know I can put that arrow there. And frankly, it was one of the deadliest shots I ever made. Is that right? Yeah, deer went maybe 60 yards and was done. So, you know, it does work. Will I ever do it again? I don't know. Well, you got away with it and felt I, good I, about it. I got it. away with it. It worked. You know, it, it causes a lot of... You know, controversy in the, the Is that right? hunt. Oh yeah, I mean, guys get really pissed off when they hear about other, other you know, bow hunters taking that shot. Yeah, I got you. Can I ask you what kind of a difference in feet per second? Like, what kind of energy difference between a modern compound and a yeah, and a traditional? It can be pretty big. I mean, so you know, I shoot bow. I used to shoot you know close to sixty or even a little over sixty pounds, but I changed my shooting style a few years ago and I dropped back to fifty pounds. And I haven't seen any real difference in penetration. But so at 50 pounds, you know, I'm shooting probably 175 feet per second. And I'm shooting an arrow that weighs around 500 grains. I think that works out to like, you know, 35 uh, pounds of kinetic energy, something like that. Compound shooters probably shooting more like, I don't know, 275 is probably not out of the question at all yeah but she's gonna say it's, it's probably about, pretty about, about right and then maybe 350 grain arrow so you know a lot lighter arrow but you know kinetic kinetic energy of that is probably up around more like i don't know i bet close to 50 pounds okay. so yeah there's there's a pretty big difference pretty big difference do you think that that, that for someone that hunts compound they want to switch to traditional archery um what's the biggest challenge there is it, do you think it's the proximity for people? Like you now got to have the distance. So you're accustomed to shooting a certain distance. You got to cut that in half. Or do you think it's just that it's so much more difficult to put the arrow where you want to put it? I think it's, you, it's more difficult to put the arrow where you want to put it because even though compound shooters can shoot 40 and 50 yards, you know, I, I hunt mostly in the east, so it's mostly whitetail stuff. Guys are still mostly shooting at deer at 20 and 25, yeah, even no, with a compound. So I don't think the distance is that much so of a difference. Because when you're ambush hunting, you can kind of pick, you almost, you can, you're, in some ways you're picking the distance. Yeah, exactly. Your, your setup is picking the distance. Yeah. I, I think it's the lack of, it's, where it's back to the support system again. You know, when you're shooting a compound, you've got all that, you know, you've got those tools, you know, to be able to just kind of keep yourself calm, lay the shot in there the way you want it. And with a traditional bow, you just don't have that. The other thing you don't have is let off. And so it's not like you can, you know, you see, you see an animal coming, you know, it's, it's passing behind a stand of dug fur or something, and you know it's going to pop out at, you know, 20 yards, and you know it's going to take a few seconds for that to happen. 
compound bow with 80% let off, you just pull when you've got good cover to pull. You know, you're at full draw. You hold, you wait, you wait, you wait, you wait. That animal pops out and, you know, you're able to get a nice shot off. You can't do that with a traditional bow, and you know, unless you're Hulk Hogan and you can hold it that long. You know, you're waiting until just a, a few seconds or a fraction of a second to be able to get to full draw and get that arrow off. And so that's a big And when you're shooting, too. it's like one fluid. Like, you, you don't really camp out at all full drawn. Isn't it kind of like a fluid motion? It depends. You know, lots of guys shoot that way. They shoot split finger, so one finger above the knock, two fingers below the knock on the string. They're drawing all, drawing all the way back in, you know, standard places, middle finger, corner of the mouth. Mm-hmm. And they're just, the whole time they're drawing, they're just burning a hole in what they want to hit. And when they hit full draw, the arrow's gone. It's that fluid motion. It's instinctive shooting. I'm kind of a hybrid system. I'm not a gap shooter, but when I get to my first anchor point, yep. I'm locked in and I'm there for a couple of seconds. And you can hold it and I can a hold, beat or two longer. Yeah, a beat or two longer until I can get to my second anchor point and then I'm gone. So I'm a slower shooter than yeah. a lot of guys. But you be. could draw back and hang out for a couple seconds, a few seconds, and then still do a nice shot. You would need to let off and start over again to get your system down. Yeah, I, I had a buck come in on me this year and... He was coming at a, just a nice crisp walk, and I came to full draw right at the point when I thought he was going to come out in my shooting lane, and he stopped dead. So here I am. I have no shot, and I'm at full draw, and I'm holding, and I'm waiting, and I'm waiting, and I'm waiting, and I, you know, just waiting for him. All he has to do is take like three or four more steps, and you know, my whole body's quaking. Yeah, I'm like yeah, an yeah. aspen leaf. You know, I'm like, shit. There's no way this is not going to happen. And so I had to real gingerly let down. And good thing I did because he ended up staying there for a long time. Oh, that, that didn't spook him. Letting no, down. it didn't spook him. And then finally, he actually turned away and started to walk away, and then turned back around and went right through the shooting lane I hoped he'd come through and then I was able to make the shot did you get the deer yeah yeah, yeah. what kind of stuff are you hunting ag land no uh, I hunt um, mostly behind my house where I've got I own 36 acres and then I have permission on another gosh I don't even know probably 250 or 300 acres which I know doesn't sound like a lot in you know in western terms no, but that's big no, east of the Mississippi man that's, that's, a, nice that's, chunk. A, that's a chunk of land State, it, and it's, it's yeah. all ridge you know it's all mountain land basically not no so not ag land nope well I use I mean I travel to other places to hunt so I do have some properties I mean, main, that like, are if you had like say like your main hunting spot big woods woods yep big woods yeah and you use, you use bait for deer. No, no never bait, use bait for no deer. bait. No bait for me. No, New York State's uh, bait's not legal. Bait's not legal in New York State. Nope. No bait. So what um, do you? Ohio, I think, is our closest state that allows bait. So what do you? What do you like to sit on? Then you sitting on trails. I sit on trails. Um, on, back up for a minute. So bait is not allowed at all in New York State. Not you're not even allowed to feed deer in New York State. I think I think that's true. It's true in some counties, and I think it's going to become true statewide, mainly because of uh, chronic wasting disease. Yeah. So there's concerns about that. So can you use scent attractants? Yeah, you can use scent attractors. Yeah. Yep. So what is your typical setup? I figure out bedding areas mm-hmm. and feeding areas, and I like to get close to bedding areas because you know deer aren't moving until you know the last light. So if you know, if you're sitting on food, you sit there all day and you're not going to see anything in a lot of cases, not always, but you know especially if you're hunting October when you know deer they're not food stressed yet or anything, and so they're staying in their beds until after dark, and then they're going to get up and move to food. So if you can find those bedding areas and get close, and what I like to do is figure out 
the terrain funnels. You know, I'm, I'm hunting mountain ground, so there's, you know, lots of little hollows and, and gotcha. ridges with benches and that kind of stuff. And so, you know, I, I try to figure out how a buck is going to get from his bed to his food. And sometimes there's, you know, things that are like staging areas where, you know, a buck will come out. It's a safe spot because there's some cover there and he'll hang out a little bit, you know, before heading off to the food. And there's a great spots if you can figure them out. Where he's going to mill around. He's going to mill around. You do bit. see that quite often, like just glass and deer, any kind of hunting situation with deer. I think oftentimes you'll see them where, where they spend a lot of time in the, in the after, like if they're coming out for the evening feed, where they spend a lot of time before really committing to coming out onto a big sage flat or coming out into an ag field, you know, they're up and they're not, they're not like just standing there. They'll feed on some browse yep. and yeah, but it's like, they know that like risky step. Oh yeah. And, and they're you, prolonging that risky thing, you know? Yeah. And you can see a lot of sign in those places. You'll see lots of tracks and, and, you know, shit. And, and as far, you know, if you're looking for bucks, you know, a lot of times you'll find rubs popping up. They in rub in those places. places. Yeah. Cause they're, I think they're bored, you know, they're in there. They're, they don't want to go to the food because, you know, that's a dangerous spot. Often doesn't have a lot of cover. They're in a place with a lot of cover and they're just kind of moving around in there, maybe feeding on what's there rubbing yeah it's like i don't think people or i'm sure they do some people probably don't realize what 20 i mean 20 yards is close yeah 60 feet yeah i mean you're like breathing the air with them oh, yeah. but it must be you must be sitting there sometimes and have deer walk by we're like that deer is so damn close but i'm not gonna take the shot oh i love it that's one of my favorite <laughs> know, things actually like, you know it's just you know ha- you know having a doe and a couple of fawns walk by it you know at 10 yards and they're right there i mean you can see every hair on that deer you can see her eyelashes yeah. you know you can you can see her see her nostrils flaring in and out when she's breathing i mean that's not, that's why i'm in the woods i mean you know, that's the stuff that really makes your heart tick after after you know growing up tree stand hunting for deer and then moving out west and just being so in love with spot stock hunting and backpack hunting you know like hunting really big country with firearms especially um or even just with bow but like traveling while you're hunting uh i I, I never got like really nostalgic for being in a tree but then one day i was just out in mile city with my brother and we spent a couple days bow hunting out of trees and um after a long break from it after a decade of not doing it and I remember sitting in that tree being like, man, I just totally forgot the level of detail where just being there and, and instead of you moving to things or you moving into something, just that having the things come to you. I remember being like having raccoons messing in the tree next to me and then squirrels and the way birds will come up and land on your arrow shaft and all that. You're like, oh, I totally forgot. Like you watch wildlife in such a different way or you like how skittish rough grouse are i mean i can't think how many times sitting in my tree stand and just observing a rough grouse which doesn't happen you can hunt you can be the biggest damn bird hunter in the world and you don't the only thing you ever see of rough grouse is them going but to be like oh yeah there he is he's feeding yeah i mean down below me scratching in the leaves it's like you see shit that you just don't see yeah i mean when you're a hiking hunter you know we all kind of evolve as hunters and you know we think about what it is we really like to do and and how we do it and i got to a, a stage in, in my hunting where i felt guilty for not doing more spot and stalk hunting or not doing more you know kind of still hunting it's always sitting in a tree or sitting in a ground blind and i was like man i should really you know i should start doing more of that other stuff and i and i have done more of it but i always come back to this this thing you know where i've matured a little bit and i said well that's what i love to do 
for all the reasons you just explained, I just love, you know, to, to just figure the deer out, just, uh, just really learn a place, mm-hmm. you know, learn what makes it tick. You know, where's the topography? Where's the food? Where do they bed? Where is that one spot in the entire forest that a deer is going to walk by? That's what really, it's like a chess game. I mean, that's what really gets me going. And then on top of that, you know, you become part of the forest when you're sitting there for hours on end and you get to see the really cool stuff. You know, the, the red fox, you know, leaping up in the air and snow diving after meadow voles. I mean, that's the kind of stuff you don't really get to see if you're out cruising around too much. But if you're right there, you know, you get to see a lot of, a lot of interesting wildlife. I remember being there one time and watching a mink dedicate about 20 minutes of his life to trying to catch a chipmunk in some holes in some trees and just being like man you know the shit so tenacious yeah the shit you just never would notice you know i loved it now uh you mentioned ground blinds you sing ground blinds yep see not not pop-ups much yeah that's like a generational thing i think it's like so few people my old man would build he'd build a wigwam ground blind but he was trained up hunting traditional archery, hunting recurve. Even when he switched to compounds, though, he would still quite often build a wigwam-style ground blind, and he would even excavate it out so it's just dead quiet in there. Quiet in there, just dirt. What's, all, yeah. what's wigwam-style? Dome. He'd build a brush dome. I mean, where it was closed on top. Where does the word wigwam come from? Like the Ojibwe and other eastern... Where you're born... Those people, the indigenous people where you were born use wigwams. You were born in a wigwam. No. You were born in wigwam country. <laughs> Type in wigwam into your damn phone. Isn't there a sock company called wigwam? There is. But nobody knows the style what that means. Of, it's a style of house. Jimmy Dorn, you know what that means? Absolutely. Yeah, a lowly, style pe- of house. A lowly pizza yeah. man. Looks just like a shelter. A lowly pizza man. <laughs> oh, shelter. Yeah. Dome shelter. Dome shelter, willow reeds, and... I don't know, leaves and stuff, wasn't it? Yeah, they sheathed it with different things, anything from bark to grass, but it's like- but That's also the first time I've heard of it using it, like, because we built, I mean, that's all I sat in growing up, you know, until we were old enough to get into a tree. It was always ground blinds, but we never built like a roof. A, a woven, it's like a, a woven thing. So you wind up, you go around your perimeter and put in long bendy poles mm-hmm. and you make a circle with long bendy poles. Then imagine- bending all those poles in to, to meet at the top. And then, then you have like a, what looks like umbrella staves with no umbrella. And then you run circular, like you're, they're basically forming lines of latitude. So there's your lines of longitude, like a half of a globe with longitude yeah. lines on it. And then you put in, you take sticks and make your lines of latitude. And then you brush it in. But then you pick your shooting height, which is whatever your comfortable height is when you're kneeling or sitting or whatever, and you leave that band of latitude not covered in any brush. And that's where you shoot out of. And you could do a square dance in there and they're not going to know you're in there. Uh, yeah. when I was in it was Af- a lot of work. When I was in Africa, we hunted out of these. They called them rock hides. But they're, they're basically pit blinds and then build up with rock to about waist high. And then above that is basically a thatched hut. Mm-hmm. you know, with little shooting ports in it. And so it's kind of wigwam-like, but it's just thatched grasses and stuff. And I mean, you'd get away with anything in there. Yeah, this is like, basically, if he was alive now, he used to build these ground blinds now and then. If he was alive now, he'd have a pop-up blind. Because a pop-up blind, same damn thing. It's like, you can get away with a lot of movement. Somebody should make one and call it the synthetic wigwam. Yeah, you can get away with a lot of movement in a pop-up blind, you know. Um, but anyway, yeah, I, I'd never, I've never shot 
you put a lot more thought into where you were setting up your pop-up blind if you had to build that. Oh, you no, just it was described. a thing. You would, have, you would have a couple of them around. You'd have a couple of them around that would just be in your repertoire. You know, yeah. I could still take it. It's funny because the farm, one of the farms we grew up on, I could take you where it was like a spot where my old man liked to sit and there was no appropriate tree there and he would just have this, you know, this ground blind he'd sit down in. But you'll, you'll sit ground blinds. Yeah, but I don't build... But don't you just get whiffed so bad? I don't build wigwams because they... Part of it... I mean, I'm on the move all the time. I, I use a climbing tree stand most of the time. I like to move from place to place. And if you're going to stop and build a ground blind, you're actually going to you know, take out a saw and you'd cut some stuff. Yeah, make it a lot of disturbance. so much scent and disturbance. So I carry just a little like little mesh netting on fiberglass poles yeah. that I can just right down in front of me and I try to back myself up to a deadfall or even a bunch of dense grasses or something like that. You get a shot off like that. Yeah, it's no trouble. Like a turkey blind setup almost. That's my system now for the with the kids is that's what I carry because there's just no way you're going to get them to sit still long enough. Yeah. (laughs) Do you you wear a ghillie suit? Yeah, I love ghillie suits. They're so much fun. Yeah. They're tough with bows though because you got all that strands of stuff hanging off of you. Just trim that arm up. That's what I do. Yeah, I take scissors and trim it up but I always tell guys who are thinking about a ghillie suit is practice like crazy in that thing before you go hunting with it oh, i mean I even you, back man. here at your chest you know you you know depending on your your body shape you know your bowstring sometimes can get into your chest and with all those strands on there it snags you really have to be careful now are you were you trained as an ornithologist you work at an ornithology lab yeah i work at the cornell lab of ornithology which is the like ornithology lab yeah, I wasn't trained as an ornithologist per se. I mean, my degrees are in wildlife biology and ecology and a little bit of forestry. Mm-hmm. But I did my master's work on, on birds. I worked on uh, American kestrels. Oh, no shit. Yeah. We just had a kestrel in one of our shows. Mm-hmm. There's kestrels working while we were hunting uh, mule deer in Nevada. A lot of kestrels in there. Yeah. What were you looking at with kestrels? I was, the, I was working uh, at a place in Pennsylvania called Hawk Mountain Sanctuary where they have a bunch of property there. And I was looking at just, you know, how they select their nest sites. Their populations are declining and trying to figure out, you know, what is it about their territories around their nest sites and the nest sites themselves that makes some of them really successful and others not successful? Why do nests fail in those places? Mm-hmm. You know, because it was just a... Did you, you find know. anything, like, conclusive? Well, one thing I found is that, you know, kestrels do best in pasture kind of situations. They don't like, you know row crops, corn, soybeans. They right? just can't hunt very well. And for, for the size of the bird, they have pretty short legs. And so getting down into some of those row crops is tough for them. There's uh, you know lots of insecticides used in those places, and they feed on a lot of insects, so that doesn't work very well. But uh, you know pasture situations are great for kestrels. The other huge thing is uh, starlings. So if you have kestrel nests, either in a natural cavity in a tree or in a nest box, and you're pretty close to the farm proper, close to the barn where you've got big populations of starlings. They rob the eggs. Those starlings will just go in there, and they they take their bill, and they pierce holes in the kestrel's eggs, and then they'll just build their nest right on top of the (laughs) the kestrel eggs. Oh, yeah, they're nasty. But the kestrels will probably just... Dorn they, it. They, they feed on the starling. They could it. eat the starling outside of the nest, but, but they just don't. They're just yeah. too timid, and they just don't do it. Hmm. I spent some time with a guy that was into bluebird blue restoration, and he like typified his work as um, just on, on a large property. You know, he was having great success with bluebirds, but he was like, if I was going to condense it all down, it's I kill English sparrows and starlings. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he goes, that's that's how you help bluebirds. Oh, there's no <laughs> doubt know? about that. Yeah. So, uh, 
like, uh, is there a certain amount of writing involved in your, like, wh- how did you, like, why, how did you come to start writing articles and books and whatnot? <sighs> like, if you got that whole other set of obligations. Yeah, I just love to write, you know, my, my, you know, when I'm out hunting and I have all those experiences, you know, things we were talking about, seeing all kinds of wildlife and, and dealing with bows and arrows, which I just love, you know, there's a whole rich history of archery and, and all the woods and there's just so much, you know, richness to it. And I just felt a need to start to write it down. So I used to write it down for myself. And one day I said, well, you know, maybe I'll just write this down a little more formally and send it to a magazine. And it took me a few tries, and then, boom, one day I got a letter in the mail and said, we've accepted your article, and we're going to send you a check. And the gigantic (laughs) magazine check started rolling in. (laughs) Gigantic, I don't know about that, but I was like, oh, yeah. And and I was just hooked. I mean, you know, I have a full-time job. I have a career that I love, you know, doing conservation biology and wildlife work. But, you know, this was something that I was really passionate about and I, and I wanted to do. And so I've just done it. Sure, I make a little extra money on it, but honestly, it's not enough to, it's enough to buy a couple of bows and go on a couple of hunting trips yep. now and then, but certainly not. I mean, I, guys who are freelance writers and make a living at it, whew, I don't know how they do it. I mean, you got to be a machine to turn out enough articles, yeah. you know, to really do well at it. But for me, it's, you know, it, it fills a, a niche in my brain. So what year was the first year, um, when did you sell your first article to, for publication? 2002, maybe? Okay. 2002 or 2003, somewhere in that ballpark. And then how, well, so here's the thing I always wonder about with writers. Like, like I think there's people who are really into something, like you're an airplane enthusiast, let's say. And that's the thing you are, you're an airplane enthusiast. And then someday you write a book about planes. Or you got people who are writers and they're like, I'm going to write. So here's my subject matter, right? Were you the, I'm going to write, and then you found your outlet through traditional archery? Or were you like, I'm going to do traditional archery? And then eventually, like, I know so much shit, I'm going to write it down. No. I, it, my, my, my connection was definitely through archery and hunting and right? then writing. Yeah. You're like, I'm going to dispense my... Uh, wisdom or yeah. try to like put some of my thoughts and find out what exactly they are by putting them on the paper. Yeah. My freshman year in college, I had to take a remedial writing course just, to, just to get in. I mean, you know, I did coming out of high school. I was no writer. Yeah. See, and, I was going to write some damn thing. Yeah. And I, I mean, I knew I was going to write. Yeah. Yeah. No, I definitely yeah. was not that. But once I figured it out, you know, once I, I figured out what I needed to do to get better as a writer, I loved it. I mean, I just ate right into you it. You got into the craft. I got into the craft of doing yeah. it. And I write a lot for work too. I mean, I, you know, a lot of what I do is, you know, is conservation biology that's focused on strategic planning. And so I take science done by other people. I take science that we do, you know, in our own team. And, you know, this is what you, were, what you guys were talking about earlier. And figure out how to reformulate that into conservation and management recommendations for wildlife. Gotcha. That's what I really love to do because- So taking information, making it applicable to real world situations. Exactly. And especially to practitioners, you know, to foresters and land managers and people who are actually out on the ground doing it. What I want to do is give them a cookbook. I want to give them a set of best management practices to go out and manage for, you know, whatever suite of species we're talking about. Yeah, I can imagine. Like you got some guy, like I always think about my my friend, Doug Duren. Um, you know, he's got a background and he, he manages a, a family property um, and they do ag and they do timberlands and stuff, but he's got all these little battles on, you know, like certain oaks 
right? Like trying to get some native like oak species regenerated, and it's a huge problem because you know whitetails love them. Oh, yeah. Can't get them up, you know. And I imagine like as he's figuring all this out, you also have there's probably resources out there, you know, that some guy knows, but just making the <laughs> the two people come together, you know, where like you got the guy who's like trying to do some like on the ground stuff and giving that person all those tools of what might be known in the academic world, you know, and, and making sure that all those connections get made. Yeah, I mean, for so many years, those connections didn't get made because, you know, scientists, by virtue of where they worked often at academic institutions, weren't, you know, they just didn't get into making policy. They, you know, yeah. they were steered away from any kind of advocacy and they, you know, they weren't translating their results into management recommendations. And so much of that has changed now. I mean, you know, where I work, we're encouraged to do that. Yeah. You know, we really want to take that next step and take the science and, and put it on the ground. And you know, cooperative extension units at, at universities. Yeah, that's like what a, an extension agent. Exactly, that's is what meant they do. to be that guy who's the liaison between practicer, like land managers and research, right? Yeah, exactly. And I mean, those were were set out initially to try to figure out how you could get your Holstein to produce, you know, more pounds of milk. But you know, now that's that's widened out into, you know, into soil conservation science. And you know, I do non-game bird work and be amazed at the number of people who are they're interested in doing that kind of stuff they own 50 acres that was once a working farm and it's not a working farm anymore they've got some money and they want to manage for wildlife you know they want to they like birds they want to have you know some warblers around or whatever it is yeah coming from a like a, a western perspective um i think it's hard for, for some people who have a distinctly western perspective don't realize the importance of private lands conservation on the eastern half of the country where you just don't have that uh where you don't have you know a lot of, a lot of these states in the west 50 60 70 percent of the land mass is is federal or state forest public land so you look at like oh yeah all the conservation work you know is like happening in these areas you get out in the east and if landowners aren't doing good conservation work it's not happening yeah, I mean, some of the species I work with, like golden-winged warbler and wood thrush, as much as 80% of their distribution in the United States is on private land. Yep. So if you can't do conservation on private land, moving the needle on those populations, you know, trying to stabilize the population and recover them, you just you aren't going to do it on public land. Yeah, you like, I mean, there's plenty of ways that it happens, but you almost like to see you like to see more credit go to those people who. Um, on there, you know, I think Doug and, and many, many guys like Doug, but those people who are thinking about that stuff, like in addition, they have an obligation, right? Like you have property that's expensive to maintain. You have an obligation to, you know, pull resources off there and, and try to make money or break even or whatever your situation is in the land. But then people who, uh, we talked about earlier about handicapping yourself with certain things, but like handicapping your operation by having some obligation to wildlife on there as well is... This is way the hell off subject, but it's important work, man. But you you deal in that kind of stuff. So. Yeah, all the time. And you're trying to figure out cooperative solutions to a lot of this stuff. Like, you know, as a suite of species, grassland birds are declining faster than any other bird group. Yeah. And a big reason for the decline is just the way in which we take off hay crops now. We take off more crops and we take those hay crops off earlier. And so these are these are birds that nest right on the ground. They're mm -hmm. obligate ground nesting grassland birds, and they just get hammered by, you know, the, the hay mowing. And so 
figuring out how you work with farmers so that farmers can still get their hay crop off, can still feed their animals, can still make money from selling hay, and you can still, you know, have a window of time where you can get at least one brood of young, you know, of those grassland birds off. I mean, that, that's the kind of stuff that's fun to me because, you know, working landscapes are, that's what, you know, what this country is built on. You know, landscapes need to continue to work, but they also need to be able to produce wildlife. And so figuring out how to do that is, it's an art and a science. I worked for a greenhouse for quite a while when I was in high school. And we would, in the summer, they'd, uh, in the spring, they'd be hardening off the flat, you know, flats. Like when you go buy plants, they come in those little, yeah, like a flat, like a flat of flowers, right? We'd move hundreds of flats out into fields. They'd come out, you'd be loading a conveyor in the greenhouse, you'd be emptying these entire greenhouses and lining these fields of flats. So it'd just be like a field of flats. I remember one time, and we're out there pulling in thousands of flats. And I find a flat that had, that a killdeer had put its eggs in the cup of the flat. So we pick every flat up, and I leave the one flat laying out in this field. And I explain to the owner, I'm like, hey, you know that one out there, I didn't pick it up, it's got a killdeer eggs in it. And he, that son of a bitch, walks out in that field, picks that flat up, dumps those eggs out there, carries Sorry it into his greenhouse, man. They're <laughs> like, come on, dude. Sorry, killdeer. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I was no softy. I was no softy as a kid, but I remember being struck by that shit as being like, dude, come on, man. <laughs> so how, how long did it, when did you start working on your boat, on traditional bow hunter's path? Like how long something like that taken when you got a whole other job you're trying to do? Oh, man. Yeah, and uh, my son was born just as I was starting to work on this thing. And so, you know, I was one of those deals where you get up at four in the morning, you know, and you're right for two hours, like oh, mad right? at the kitchen counter until I hear him wake up and, you know, and the whole family thing starts. But I don't know, from start to finish, it's about two years. Yeah. Something like that. I mean, I think I turned the manuscript in in about, I don't know, maybe 14 months or something like that. And then there's that whole, you know, editing process and production, you know, you know the drill. You know that goes into all of that. So who do you mad like? Who's the mo- who's the best audience for it in your mind? Is it, are you thinking like, uh, um, is it meant to be for people looking to get into it for dudes that are already into it? Yeah, it's everybody. That's it, a tough question. Well, it's, this is one of those first books too, where you, you know you're throwing the kitchen sink at it a little bit, you know, because it's the first time I've done it. So I guess I have I have three audiences in mind. I have traditional bow hunters, you know, traditional archers who are already into it. And there's a ton of information in here that I think they'll, they'll like and, and can benefit from lots of how-to stuff. It's for compound shooters who want to pick up a traditional bow. And traditional archery is one of the fastest growing sports that we have. I mean, people are really coming to it. And there's not a lot of good information out there about how you make the switch. Mm-hmm. So, you know, compound shooters wanting to switch to traditional archery is, is another one, another audience. Oh, like their challenges or what they're facing are different than someone who's got no archery background coming into it yeah it's a little different and, and just you know what bow do i buy yeah i mean you know there's there's hundreds of bowyers out there now you know do you get a long bow do you get a recurve do i spend a thousand bucks on a custom bow or should i just go buy a 500 hundred dollar production bow now do you come down and be like and help people or you just try to muddy the waters in your book oh, i try to help people no so you're like specific recommendations well, specific as you can get. I mean, without you know, being brand everybody's specific. different. I mean, I'm looking across the table here at Yanni. You're what six, 
one probably you know you're you're a big guy and you know your your whole situation is going to be different than mine and so when i make recommendations about what bow to go with you really have to there's some generalizations yeah but okay i guess kind of what i'm getting at is this in the in the how to like we did some how to stuff like some like how how to books and in there you want to be like oh yeah you know a good pair of boots should do x y and z right so you could leave it at that or you could say, for instance, this is a hell of a boot. Like, do you help people where you're kind of like, listen, I've done a whole bunch of hunting, killed a bunch of game. There's a lot of reasons. There's a lot of arguments for and against all this kind of stuff. If you're on the fence, go recurve, not longbow. Or you just kind of say, like, here's all the shit to consider. Yeah, I guess... I think I mostly just say, here's all the shit to consider. A, a little more pointed than that, you yeah. know, but I definitely don't say, if you're making the switch from compound, you absolutely have to shoot a recurve yeah. because that's the pathway then to the longbow or something. I, I just don't believe that. I think everybody's got to make their own decision. And I think, you know, if you give them good information, they can do it. People are smart. I mean, they can figure this stuff out. Yeah. You know, so I, I try to steer them down the right path. Now, do you feel that... Uh do you find yourself trying to talk people into traditional? Or are you like, if you're interested, here's a resource? Yeah, I, I talk, try to talk people into it in the sense that I'm really passionate about it and I love, you know, the leather and the bone and the wood and all the stuff that just comes with it to me that gets leather, me Leather, bone, wood, Yeah, man. I just love it, you know. <laughs> now it's, I'm hooked. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's just so cool. But on the other hand... I mean, you have to have a lot of time to invest in practicing, you know, every day and have a place to hunt and really, you know, not just time practicing, but you're not going to go shoot a squirrel or a rabbit or a deer every time you go out with a traditional bow. It's going to be every 10th time you go out or every 50th time. Yeah. And so if you're working, you know, 70 hours a week at some job and you have three kids and you really want to learn how to hunt or you're already a hunter and you just want to do something a little different, it's, it's probably not the right thing for you at that time. So no, I don't, I don't, you know, take people by the shoulders and say, yeah, hey, you got to do this. Yeah. That's the thing though. Cause people say to me like, Oh, so you think that everyone who uh, ought to go hunting? I'm like, no, no, not at all. No. Yeah. If you're interested in it, I'd love to have a chat with you. But I'm not going to, like, try to convince you to be interested in yeah. it. Yeah, there's no doubt. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart, or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid, and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And, as often is the case, those guys were on to something. Because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER.
I want to tell you about an American-made success story and Black Buffalo's award-winning nicotine pouches. Black Buffalo was built by dippers with decades of smokeless tobacco use. Black Buffalo is all about the history and tradition of dip, but they understand the convenience and discretion modern-day consumers are looking for. Black Buffalo's nicotine pouches give you the versatility to consume discreetly, but keep the ritual with flavors dippers love. Mint, straight, and wintergreen, all proudly made right here in the USA. Tell them, Chili. The reason I like black buffalo pouches is, one, they're very discreet. And what I mean by that is I can throw one in and almost forget it's there. And I prefer the mint pouches. So if you're 21 or older, consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the black buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. Rain or shine, every day is a great day for fishing, right? And you probably got rain gear, but you shouldn't overlook sunny day gear. Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite Hoodie has you covered on the sunniest day. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite Hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on and having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. I mean, who wouldn't trade a sunburn for a trophy fish? But why do it if you don't have to, especially when this Solar Stream Elite hoodie is built with broad-spectrum UV protection? We're talking UPF 50, and it has airflow, so you don't overheat. And what's the alternative? Putting down the rod every half hour so you can slather on some sunscreen. Seems like an easy choice to me. So if you're going to be spending long days out on the water, and I sincerely hope that you will be, head on over to Columbia.com slash PFG and shop all of their performance fishing gear. I'm amazed at the number of, you know, this whole notion of, you know, adult onset hunters, you know, Mm -hmm. people who are, you know, have never hunted. They're in their 20s or 30s or, you know, maybe even 40s or 50s and they're coming to hunting. And we're seeing that so much in New York State, you know, coming out out of the city and out of other urban areas, people who have been introduced to hunting through food and through meat eater. And, you know, I get it all the time. I work at Cornell University where I'm surrounded by students that are coming from all over the country and they hear through the grapevine that I'm a hunter and that I'm a traditional bow hunter and they'll seek me out and come to me and say look you know I've never done this before and and by the way don't tell my classmates I'm interested in this but you know I'll be a pariah I really want to I really want to check this out kind of thing and, and I'm just it, that did that never happened 10 years ago yeah. and it's happening right? now yeah I shouldn't say never but it didn't happen often not like it is now yeah Good. No, there's no doubt about it. In my mind, the biggest argument against I like I own a longbow. I own a recurve. Never killed a big game animal with uh, a longbow or recurve. Yanni and I talked about this not long ago. It's like my thing is like my primary goal as a hunter. It's like primary goal as a hunter and fisherman. Uh, you know, I got a million secondaries, or I guess you only have one secondary. I got the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seven, eight, nine, tenth. Right. Primary goal is that I don't that uh I have enough meat where when my family's eating at home we have wild game meat. That's like my number one thing. So all else 
falls from that. It's like, I want to be the when we're eating in the Ranella household, like when I cook dinner at night, I go into my freezer and I got enough game meat in there where, you know, and I think that um, if I knew I was going to fulfill that all the time and I, and I, I fulfill it quite handily right now, pr- primarily because of the particulars of my, of my uh, occupation, I have absolutely no problem doing that. But let's say I got into some other line of work down the road that really limited how much time I spent outdoors. And I was looking at that long bone as much as I'm like, man, I told, I respect it, right? I respect it. No end. Um, I got kind of like some family ties to that stuff. I get it. It's, it's like a higher art. But I look at it and I'm like, but I know if I, you know, with that rifle, man, I'm, gonna be pound, I'm piling up the pounds of meat. So, I mean, we eat a ton of venison. I mean, yeah. it's all, almost the only meat we eat. And so, you know, my goal every year is to stock the freezer too. And it takes a lot of time with a longbow or a recurve, but you can do it. I mean, I have three deer in the freezer right now. Yeah. And, you know. That's, by, a, that's, a, that's a good jump on the situation, yeah, though, man. By the time the season is over, I hope to have two or three more. And, gotcha. you know, and that'll, that'll you know, there's, uh, it's my wife and I, a three-year-old son, and I have a daughter who's just two months old. So she's not eating venison yet, but she will be soon. Give four or five months. Yeah, and uh, oh yeah, so, if you got if you're putting away a few deer, you're loving it. Yeah, and you know the, I mentioned earlier, the, but you, know, you got a lot. But you, again, you got a lot of days into it. Yeah, you're not hunting a, three days. Huge amount of time. I mean, I you know I my it's funny, we were cleaning out some stuff at the house a couple of weeks ago, and my wife ran across one of my old hunting journals, and she starts leafing through it, and she was like, "Holy shit." You hunted every single day <laughs> from October 1st to almost the end of November. It's like, yeah, I either get a morning hunt in or an afternoon hunt for every day Dude, of the season. Dude, that's great, man. But, I mean, I don't do it anymore because I have a family and I, I just yeah. can't. But when I was single, I mean, I was out there all the time. But you, you mentioned about filling the freezer. Those times that I was pulling the muzzle loader out in the last 25 years, it was at the end of the season and freezer the freezer filling. was empty. So that's like, your freezer filling trip freezer is to take a flintlock? Flint <laughs> yeah. You're like, baby, I'm getting serious. Yeah. <laughs> getting out this here flintlock. Yeah. That's crazy. Take oh, no prisoners. Hope it ain't raining. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, rain Take no prisoners today, well. man. I got this souped up firearm in here. Uh, <laughs> mine's all rusty, too, and this scope's all, or this scope, the stock's all banged up. It's just a mess. So would you, do you ever think you're right about hunting with flintlocks? That's a whole damn thing, too. Too, man yeah I, I don't know i love my, my dad got me into flintlocks and and i just love doing it and yeah maybe someday yeah you gotta have nerves of steel yeah. because you need to hold steady between the first boom and the second boom oh uh, yeah most it's... people the first boom they got the muzzle six inches up in the air yeah. you gotta oh, sit yeah. tight yeah, yeah. boom bam <laughs> well and you get those really delayed fires too you know where the, the flint hits the frenzy and the, the powder in the pan flashes and you're holding 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 <laughs> and all of a sudden boom you know by that time you're well off what you were going to shoot at yeah I've done, I've done some messing around with those but i kind of like that stuff but yeah it's fun but you but uh do you what do you think you're gonna do you think you do more books yeah definitely thinking about another book i'm working on it now i was working on it in the hotel room a little bit and just kind of framing it and getting some stuff on paper at the moment it's not yeah. going to be about bow hunting no, no, it's going to be, it's going to be about hunting. Oh, okay. Uh, it's, I found in writing this book that I like writing about people. You know, I, I love writing about natural history and hunting and all that stuff, but I really love writing about people and I'm passionate about conservationist and the whole hunter conser- conservationist movement. And it strikes me that, you know, we hear all the time about this, this whole suite of people 
who you know who founded the hunter conservationist the movement. Leopold, Gifford Pinchot, Gifford Pinchot, Grinnell, Roosevelt. We talk about those fellows all the time. All, all <laughs> yeah, I've only in the last year really started to like just dedicate a little bit of free time uh, of like learning more about that. that the names you just yeah. hear, and, yeah. but there's a whole bunch of others too, like. FDR, you know, did a whole bunch. You know, founded the Civilian Conservation FDR? Work. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Sort of, Some of the, like the the New Deal works. Yeah, and stuff. Had, yeah. Had, he had a hand in founding National Fish and Wildlife Foundation. I mean, there's all sorts of stuff. Other. He's so, an unsung hero. If he in fact a- is a hero, absolutely. No one yeah. talks about that guy. Yeah. So my, th- what I'm not, thinking I mean, about- not that they don't talk about him. I mean, fella had to get a little bit tangled up in World War II. But I mean, no one talks about him through the lens of, of well, conservation. conservation. Yeah, yeah. yeah, you just put your finger on what I'm what what the book is going to be about. It's my working title is is Red Hands, Green Hearts: Stories of American Hunters and Conservationists. I like that and, shit. That's and so, and what I want, and I want to tell their stories. I That's a good title. I don't want to just do like you know Roosevelt did X, Y, and Z. Why did he do it? What were his What were his hunting experiences like? What How did Leopold hunt? I mean, you know, I've. Leopold actually, from what I've read, wasn't a very successful hunter, and his wife actually out-hunted him a lot. But those stories aren't out. There. He seems to do a little bit of blundering in the game. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He kind of was. That was like he kind of like take the long walk. Yeah, and like there's one. Well, you know? <laughs> well, to come up with some of the stuff that uh, that he said, you had to have a long walk. To exactly. Think you know. it through. Yeah, I imagine he probably walked past a lot of shit like deep in thought, and then he realized, oh, standing there, yeah. you know. So I just re- and I want to fi- I want to find some of those figures too, like FDR, like um, Stuart Udall, uh, you know, some of these people who who were hunters and did great conservation work, but are completely unsung. Mm-hmm. You know, we just don't know about them, and I want to tell their stories. Yeah, it's interesting. Now, uh, Stagpole books is kind of cool because they do so much stuff in the in the outdoor space. They've been yeah. around a long time. Yeah. Have you liked working with those guys? Yeah, I guess great. you can't say if you didn't, but <laughs> <laughs> probably would. But. Wink. <laughs> <laughs> No, they've been great. They've yeah. been fantastic. I, no, I mean, they've been such like a constant in the, as far as like, like uh, natural history stuff and hunting and fishing spaces and, and fishing. venture travel and Absolutely. just, you know. Yeah, I mean, it was funny because when I, I had the idea for this book and I wrote the proposal and I sent it out to a bunch of different publishers and Stackpole was top on my list and I never heard back from them. And so I, I pinged him again and never heard anything. And I was literally just about ready to sign a contract with someone else when Judith Schnell from uh, Stackpole returned one of my Judith emails. Judith Schnell still around? Yeah. And she, she, really? said, she said, absolutely, we're interested in your book. I'm so sorry I haven't been able to get back to you. And it was just like, boom, everything fell into place after that. And so, was, I mean, she was literally hours or a day away from, you know, or I was from, from you know, with going with someone else. So where, what's the best way people, uh, what's the best way people find your book? I'm It's on Amazon, right? It's on Amazon. Um, you can buy it there, but you can also buy it at my website, which is Traditional Spirit Outdoors. Com. What all is that? What what kind of stuffs on your website? Uh, it's stuff about the book and other stuff. I do a lot of freelance writing, and you know, I, I'll do uh, writing for people's websites, kind of content development, that kind of thing. And do you do other shit? Like, do you, are you nap? Do you nap broadheads and do aerial shafts and stuff? I make arrows, but I don't do any napping. You, you haven't shot. You haven't napped ahead and tried to shoot something with it. I've tried. When to you nap- say you make an arrow, what do you? What's what's your blank um, slate? Yeah, I'm starting with a starting with just a wooden shaft, unfinished. You know, I buy a wooden shaft Cedar. and then go from there. Cedar, I like ash. You know, ash is a little heavier. Yeah, I saw stronger. in your book you talk about the fletching and the yep. fletching process. And yeah, 
it's fun stuff. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So say the website again. It's uh, traditionalspiritoutdoors.com. And and if you were going there, they'd probably buy a signed book off you, right? They can get a signed book. And the other thing they can do is I give 10% of all book sales back to backcountry hunters and anglers. Really? And so when 10% you're, of the cover price. 10% 10 of the cover price when you're buying So if someone book, buys a book, you give, you give $2.10 to BHA? Yeah. It's generous. Well, you know, it's, I think conservation is so important. Those piss ants at Patagonia, they only give 1%. <laughs> it comes from a place of love it comes from a place of love I, I always like i know a lot of guys hunt in patagonia i like patagonia i actually met a fellow that works at patagonia not long and i was telling him about that it's just that uh I, I feel like they've um you know you got this like patriarch who kind of started this company and he's like uh he likes to do a little hunting and fishing and whatnot, and I just feel like so they, haven't, just, got the, they haven't got the memo. Trolling they haven't got the him. memo. Trolling for him or a representative to give us a call. Or I heard email. at one point that he was a closeted hunter. Yeah, but works, I think that's that's not true. That's yeah, not true. He's I think people closeted. like to make that story. He's not yeah. closeted. Yeah, he like he's like open about because he just, he was just recently profiled in the New Yorker and uh, and in there he talks about a bit about hunting. He's not closeted, but I thought he's closeted. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Anyhow, what was I saying? About Pat Wydak? How'd that come up? 1%. 1%. They only gave oh. one to the planet. You know, Yanni did Rise. a whole t whole damn t-shirt run. I think he gave all the money away. Mm -hmm. 100% of the profits. That stupid. <laughs> all the money. <laughs> <laughs> I can't compete with that, Yanni. <laughs> no, it's, it's been good for did us. Did you sell them out? How Good yeah, for you in what no, way? we've been... Well, I just think the exposure, you know, it gives us... It's, it's marketing. I mean... So hold on now. So it's not... But so... All right, so explain that. You had a t you had a t shirt. There's BHA written on it. Yeah. We we, we specifically made a t shirt for this person. For but this did you purpose. take the money out to make the t shirt so at least? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So like I said, profits. All right. So once we paid for the shirts, paid for the design. So you were losing you were like losing yeah. money everyone. No, I got no. you. Because that's that's the bad business. That would be a bad business. Because then you won't even be around to do any good for anybody. <laughs> yeah. No, and it's great, man. When you get an email or, or you know a personal phone call from Land, and he's like, "Dude, you guys really put your, you know, your money where your mouth was, and like we just got another check from you guys, and we we're so stoked." Like, like you send the check in. Yeah, it's. it's Did I ever tell you this story? Good, yeah, it feels real good. I might have told. I might have told. Stop me if I told this story on a podcast. I one time went to. God, have I told this story? I was down in. Remember we're talking about North Carolina? Like, what's a trendy town in North Carolina? Charlotte. There's no, not trendy. Uh, the one up Asheville. in the mountains. Yeah. Asheville. It's one I went to Asheville, North Carolina, and this guy down there was doing this. He does this wild game dinner, okay, mm -hmm. where he charges, you know, 75, I think it was 75 bucks a seat. Mm -hmm. He does a wild game dinner. And I'd pointed out to him, like, you know, if you, some of the seminal wildlife conservation legislation in this country yeah. had to do with banning the sale of wild game meat and that's kind of how we recovered our wildlife species because we got rid of market hunting and what you're engaged in here is you're engaged in market hunting um and you're breaking a whole lot of laws by having by charging for a wild game dinner we talked some more about it. i'm like he goes oh so and so i'm like yeah places do fundraisers you can do fundraisers with proper accounting you know where you have a wild game dinner and you raise money and the money goes because it's not a for-profit venture and he then says oh okay and so then I, I go to one of these dinners as part of a book tour thing I'm on and he's, 
And he says how, and I get to pick the recipient of the money. And I pick, I pick the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership. After that dinner, I got a hold of him and said, hey, you let me know if you ever get a check from the organization or the person or anything. Never got it. Never got it. And he's talking about it at the event. Tricky son of a bitch. That's a debit out of the car. Yeah, if, yeah. If I, I, you know, I didn't like. I never like went after him about it. But it, it, and, you know, I don't want to talk about anything. But but uh, you know, I, I didn't do like all the work I should have done to like document it or whatever. But I remember thinking it was a little bit. Yeah. So anyhow, you uh, so you write them in. You just like write the check. Mm-hmm. You keep track of it or whatever. Yeah. But they sell it too. Not yet. We had to. We're gonna print some more up and get them some shirts to sell. You guys sell Belltown Pizza T-shirts? Lots of them. Yeah, come summer, the tourists like to take them home for sure. They eat pizza and walk out with a T-shirt. Eat pizza, get a cool T-shirt. Is that why you're asking me who does our T-shirts? Yeah, I got a great guy. So, yeah. dude, our T-shirt situation's a mess, man. Well, everybody's like calling me up, trying to hit you up for T-shirts because they know I know you. Yeah, just <laughs> earlier, Jimmy Dorn hit me up for a net gator for a friend, a kid of a friend. Yeah, my buddy Cody's uh, kid, Ridge, is going to have a Merry dude, Christmas. Dude, anybody named Ridge? We got a guy we work with that we cool named him kid. Ridge. He's a cool little His kid. His name's Chris. We named him Ridge Pounder. Oh, yeah. That's, that's a cool name. Yeah. His wife is Miss Pounder. <laughs> yeah, Ridge Pounder. Whatever happened to that son of a bitch? He needs to come back out with us. Yeah. You he, talking to him at all? Yeah. No, I'm, I'm keeping keeping the, the leash I'm trying to shorten the leash, you know. But yeah, he he had to go and just you know test the waters other places. Realize that he was already working for the great, the, yeah, the good folk. Yeah, yeah. Jimmy, got any uh, closing thoughts? Wow, not really. Just enjoyed uh, learning a little bit more about longbows and recurves, and I still have. Yeah, you I, you, sh- you shoot some arrows out I of a, a out com- of a souped up bow. Yeah, yeah, I have a compound, nice Matthews that I like a lot. But you shot a freak buck with it, I think last year. I did. I shot a really old, really smelling crazy looking deer, deer crazy yeah. looking deer. Yeah. Yeah. deer? Uh, mule deer, yes. Five by four. It was really super old. He looked like he'd been through hell. He was not in good shape. <laughs> I, I did him a favor, I think. He was in the autumn of his life. He I was think, at man. the very end, yeah. There was no, uh, no fat, no blood came. It was just yeah. bizarre. But uh, and about a thousand ticks on him and, and a distinct uh, smell. Good stuff. It was. Uh, but you, you, know, you probably cool. served all that meat. At oh the yeah, <laughs> yeah. Special uh, sausage. <laughs> like, oh, it's a little funny. We'll give you a discount yeah. on that one. <laughs> yeah, Super Bowl. You ran a Super Bowl special that yeah. year. <laughs> so, well, if you if you could sell it, that's what they pay the big bucks for yeah. across the uh, Atlantic. In that's Germany, true. we I was told by a guy who's a who, you know, like in Scotland stuff they do. Mm-hmm. You know, they got like. It's a different system there where the landowner owns it's not like America, like in America the people own the animals there, the landowner owns the animals and they right. sell and and to ger- the German market, mm-hmm. rutting stags. They want rutting stags. <laughs> they like them to okay. be the word they use is high. Okay. High and I think flavor. Did, didn't we hear the same thing about the, the, the big boars in Texas? That somehow they Oh yeah. That's right. Separated the, big the, boars. The, the meat out from the big boars. Yeah, that, you think like, yeah, I don't want that big boar. I'll take that little fat sow. Right. What are you saying for the European markets? Some European markets, they like a good, they like when they're eating game meat, they want to know they it. They want to know it, right? Yeah, they don't want a mouse fart around. Yeah, top about, it. Oh, it's so tender and mild. They're yeah. like, fuck that. Yeah, yeah, I've been trying to keep that in mind lately as I go through my meats and, you know, just like taste and whatever and just not have the, like, it's like with eating these chicken breasts, we're always like, oh, 
the blander it is, the better it is, as opposed to being like, oh, no. I mean, culture in general. Yeah, has yeah, gotten yeah. To be our, where, yeah. yeah. Like our, the measure our, of good meat is tender and mild. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's it, tender and mild. Must be good. Yeah, and instead now I'm like, you know, maybe I want to shoot that rutted up buck, you know? Dude, we did a Pepsi challenge. We were eating raw meat mm. out of a one-and-a-half-year-old buck and raw meat out of a um, uh, like four- or five-year-old, you know, full-on buck. Mule, mule deer. deer. Now, the one had been hanging in a tree in cold weather for several days, so that, that gives it a the, – the big buck had been hanging. Mm-hmm. It's just like you would have known – it's not even a and everybody talks about oh yeah that old buck well i'll shoot a eater buck and you know all that it's like dude that buck there was no difference between those two bucks couldn't tell no uh, no, no raw the, meat the, cut right out yeah. of the damn leg gotcha. same cut the the, the bigger buck actually t- it, um it, it was better, better texture yeah to to the tooth it was better than the young buck but obviously the young buck was literally killed eight hours yeah. earlier like that fresh meat has real iron taste to it and it's got like uh hasn't gone through its rigor process yeah, it, what's that process called? Helen Cho, who you know, Ron. Yeah, I know Helen. EKG May, where they catch a fish. You ever see this? They like I was out fishing with Helen. Put the old. And they catch a fish and they cut the tail and bend the tail back and then they run a steel rod, like a piece of wire, through the spinal column to relax that fish. But I saw guys in South America, they caught a big river turtle mm-hmm. and they um, ran a willow not willow probably but a long bendy green stick all through down its spinal column and that just melted that turtle just relax because if you cut that off turtle you gotta wait six seven hours before you can cut it up this turtle was just like that's that yeah but same way when they shot cattle you know i've watched them process cattle in like big slaughterhouses Mm -hmm. you know they hit with that captive bolt gun hang them up i think they hit with the captive bolt gun flip them around hang them up upside down bleed them then electrocute them and once you zap them they're just there's no flinching kicking just jello yeah they're just huh. i think it does something to the whole pro the whole rigor process with the nervous system but they got that same thing by running that rod through that turtle dude that thing was not you could just eat it right then and there huh. probably severs all those nerve connections from the spine going out to the muscles yeah because you know when they're like this you pull the arm out the arm comes right back you do that to it, he's just... Yeah, the brain's probably in there firing away going, you know, pull, 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 but nothing's happening because it's all yep. been cut off. Hmm. Speaking of zapping meat, did you ever get to try that tender buck gadget? Some bit, no. I still got it too. I want to try it. But it's like our hunting isn't really conducive to it. Yeah. You have to take it out to Doug's. Yeah, a place where you can get the whole cow elk in well, the Well, I mean, truck. like, yeah, I can load my backpack up and then put a battery in there and shit. <laughs> yeah. Squid chicken, you got to carry a battery on. That's bad enough. Just get it from the car to the pier, man. I can't imagine hiking back in four miles at a 12-volt. Um, Yanni? Um, I think you did a really good job, Ron, on um, – I hunted traditional for probably, I don't know, at least six years, maybe a f- few longer. Tell me about the turkey got on accident. I shot, I'm proud to say I've gotten three shots at elk with my recurve, all well within my range. You know, it's like that 20 yards or less range. All three arrows went clean over their backs. And at the time I was like, I was spending for, for me at the time, big bucks to drive up to Montana because our, our, Monta- our uh, Colorado's archery season would close. I would drive up to Montana, spend $1,200 on a week long hunting trip. And then fling one over the back. And I was like, oh, I'm getting a compound, you know. <laughs> Next year, kill the cow. 
Um, but still, I'm proud of the fact that I got in close and numerous other times, you know, I let elk walk at, you know, 24, 25 or whatever. And I think I'm going to come back to shoot, shooting traditional at some point. But the turkey that I did kill, um, before I shot a turkey with my shotgun, we would chase turkeys around with uh, our recurves, <clears throat> which is super fun. We would do it just like elk, like have a caller behind us, you know, that would be calling the turkey and he'd come in strutting. And if that turkey's strutting and he turns away from you, I mean, you've got all the time and, you know, freedom in the world to draw your bow back and get a nice shot. Yeah, up, that fan know. blocks all the peripheral vision. Yeah, they can't see yeah. nothing. But <laughs> this is actually in the fall and uh, where we hunt in Nebraska. I mean, it's like, it's near unlimited, like turkey killing. Like I forget, you can kill quite a few in the fall. But we would basically just ambush on the roost, you know. So we would just ha- like hang out where we knew they were going to be coming back towards the roost in the evens, you know. So you're just in there, nothing's going on, and then five minutes later, there's like 50 turkeys around you, you know. And a lot of times, the young ones, the um, are they still poults at that point? In, even if it's the fall. Poltish. Poltish. Yeah. <laughs> but you, but you can tell. I mean, they're only like different. five pound birds, yeah. Yeah. you know, but they're fighting and screwing around or whatever. And I had these, I think they were two Jakes and they were locked up like they do with their necks, you know, like literally twirled around each other. And uh, I'm thinking, oh, just easy. No big deal. You know, and I just draw back, try to pick my spot, let go. And again, just right over the back of the one, I'm going, ow. And right as I kind of say, oh, at the same time, I hear this kind of like, weird like this turkey noise that's basically like a ah, you know <laughs> <I'm> like, <laughs> uh-oh you know and Bingo. there's so many turkeys around that then i'm like oh, i better go check that out you know so i jump up and run and my arrow had just like gone over this little rise just enough and there was a hen back there and she's running off with one of my arrows stuck you're like you weren't hunting with someone because you'd have had to been like yeah i was pulled back on those jakes and i saw that hen and thought that looks like a good eater you know you'd have had to act like you meant it man yeah my buddy still makes fun of me who i was with who had killed you know piles of turkeys you know prior to that but that was my first ever turkey you know of, of any kind of you know turkey kill I come running back with that hen, and now now everybody's like, "Oh, you carry him by the legs, right?" Well, I've got that hen by the <laughs> neck, and I'm just like, "Yeah, look, here, here's my hen turkey." But, um, anyways, back to the book. I think you did a really good job of um, like taking the pressure off of uh, what traditional bow hunting is in there, and you really explained that well to where, like, you, we were talking a little bit, touched on it earlier, where people get into it, and it's like, well. What makes it traditional? Do I have to be walking around in pure buckskins and moccasins or of this, course, that, and the... Of course. Yeah, yeah right? And a, coon, a coon skin hat, right? But you're like, no, it's like whatever you want it to be, you can have it be that way. And then pick what you like about it. And I got to say, like, yeah, shooting those recurve bows, it's such a different thing than locking off with a compound. You know, there's just such a beautiful, smooth, something flowy about it. You know, shooting them's great. But on that, I have kind of like a follow-up question. And as I was always wondered, it's a problem that I have with being um, left-eye dominant, but a right-handed shooter and shooting traditional. And everybody's always like, you got to shoot left, got to shoot left. So now I have a left-handed longbow. I've been messing around with it a little bit. My shooting's not that great. It might get better. But my question is, is like, how come people just don't take the simple bows that like you have on your cover here, whether it's a recurve or a longbow, and just put like one pin they out do. there? They do. do oh, they? yeah. That's what, yeah. I is that, that like, all to, time, is that like yeah. totally okay? Cool? It, there's like, just this weird thing that's happened probably in the last 
maybe 20 years. I mean, if you go back to the 50s and 60s, and well, I, I like to collect vintage bows, so I have lots of old bear bows and Ben Pearsons. They all have holes on the back of the riser where there used to be a sight. Yeah. I mean, those old guys all shot sights on their recurve bows. We shot burger buttons and flipper rests on them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But there's this mindset now among the traditional archery crowd that you're not traditional or you don't shoot instinctive or you're somehow cheating if you put a sight pin on a recurve. And I say fooey to that. That's a bunch of crap. I mean, if you want to use a sight pin on a recurve, do it, man. It's still, it's, it's, there's still so much fun to be had with a recurve. Yeah. And if that sight pin gives you some confidence or if you're cross-eyed dominant. I, I feel like it would. Like yeah. just having that one pin, I would just be like, there she is. Go you for know? it. Oh, it's, but it's all, it's already like, the, when, when people start to act like there's like these rigid definitions of that stuff, it's like, what, they feel like they're the gatekeepers oh, or yeah, something. Oh, yeah, exactly. No, I know. Or you got guys like, like, oh, yeah, but he. You know, like oh, I yeah, had like it? all this equipment, but yet you flip through three of his archery and it's not like sight pin for a recurve it's like it's like literally not in there i think i don't remember the name of it but three rivers does sell this really cool site that's like a trapezoid shaped thing that's a little it's a little frame it's hollow and it's black like aluminum real lightweight aluminum and one edge of it is painted fluorescent yellow and so it's not a pin but it's like an aperture you look through so you've got that thing attached to your riser and you're looking kind of through this aperture that's not you know it's not a pin prick like you're trying to put an arrow there mm -hmm. but it gives you a frame of reference yeah something to box it in by and it's fast too it's not like a pin where you've got to dial yeah. it in it's it just come up and you box it in like and a ghost boom, ring on like on a rear receiver right that's what they call that on a peep yeah like yeah. a peep yeah you yeah. know try, try one of those yeah i will my brother, who my brother Danny, who hunts, shoots a lot with the recurve and does some hunting with his recurve. Um, he, you know, shoots carbon arrows, and he had to really look to find a carbon arrow that didn't have the fake wood on it, because he felt like he's like I'm shooting carbon. I don't want to then try to act like I'm not and bullshit people. And he goes, most of these carbon arrows sold have a wood like Ingrained. finish where it's supposed to be like. You're like embarrassed about shooting carbon, but he's like, I'm not. I was like, like I'm not going to go out of my way and pay extra money to bullshit people. I shoot those bullshit <laughs> arrows. But, but you the, said you almost have to. Well, the reason I do is because they're heavier. Because they're marketed to traditional bow hunters, and they're a little heavier than standard carbon arrows for a, a compound. No, that's what, but he found, and I have some right. I got some around here somewhere. A high high planes or something. Yeah, but he said he said you're almost forced into doing it because all the arrows of the of the right you know spine the, the right yeah, exactly are all weaker spine done, all, all done that way but weight, yeah. yeah but there's three the rivers three rivers carry some guy that you can just buy black and he felt so much better about it where he's like it's like guys remember um you know like sneaky Pete pool cues right great pool cues that are made to look shitty. So it looked like you were shooting a bar <laughs> stick when you were actually shooting like a, fine a you were actually shooting a good cue, but you didn't want everybody to know it. So you got like a they like make it look shitty cosmetically. Yeah. <laughs> Duffer and pool keys. Yeah, I, I get so fed yeah, up with all that pee. stuff. Pee. <laughs> yeah, but there are a lot of gatekeepers. Oh yeah. I mean, it happens in every discipline, you know. But it's like, oh yeah, you know, he gets a lot of elk, but you know, he uh, you know shoots at five hundred yards, or whatever. And in traditional archery, it's like, oh yeah, but he's not. He shoots carbon Whatever. arrows. He's napping them. He's napping his points out of glass and not obsidian. <laughs> <laughs> Man. 
Somebody's always going to give grief. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, no man. And in, and in your world, there's a lot of it. And in yeah. the fly fishing world, there's a lot of oh, it. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm sure I'll get emails after this podcast. You know, you're not I can't believe you said that. Yeah. You're not yeah. traditional exactly. enough. Exactly. Uh, let's get a coonskin cap. Yeah. You'll make, make up for it. You got, you got any final thoughts, Ron? Yeah. I mean, I, I guess my one final thought, you were asking earlier about, uh, you know, if I think people should get into tra- traditional bow hunting or traditional archery. And, I don't know. I'm not going to force anybody into it for hunting sake, but I do think if you like to shoot anything, whether it's a handgun, a shotgun, a rifle, a compound bow, you'll love shooting a longbow or a recurve. It is just so, I don't know, to me, it's so satisfying to see that arrow fly. And, it, you know, it's a little slower than a compound, so you actually get to see the arc of the arrow. You know, you do the whole wood bone leather thing again. And the other thing I think that's just so freaking cool about it, and the thing that it's I don't know if I'll be able to explain this, but the thing that keeps me coming back is that it's one of the only hunting forms where it's your own energy from your body that's going into that arrow, that's going into that animal, that's putting meat in the freezer. That's a good way to put it. You know, it's like chucking a spear or something, but, you know, everything else, something else is going to store that energy for you. But it, with traditional bows, it, I mean, it's you. It's your shoulders, your arm, your back. You know, it's your own energy that's going into that arrow. And I, I don't know if that's maybe be an esoteric thing, but, no, you know, no, it's just no. so cool to me. No, it translates. Yeah, we got, uh, yeah, you, you can get all, you can get poetic all you want over here. Um, all right, so once more. You sons of bitches out there that want to start shooting trad bows, a traditional bow hunter's path. Lessons and adventures at full draw. Ron Rohrbau Jr. What's your website again? Traditional Spirit. What is my website? It's traditional Spirit. Uh, traditionalspiritoutdoors.com. Or you go find it out. You don't, you don't get mad when people buy it off Amazon, right? No, I don't get mad. You can get it, we talked about Three Rivers. I should plug them. You can get it from Three Rivers oh, really? Archery, too. Yep. Nice. Yep. Who brokered that? Uh, did your publisher do that? No, I did that. Getting in there and doing it. Yeah, I mean, you have to. All right, man. Thanks for tuning in. All right. Thank you. Hey, if you follow wildlife news at all, you're probably aware that the island of Maui has an incredible abundance of Axis deer, so much so that they're causing ecological damage. Well, Maui Nui venison is thinning out some of those Axis deer herds and delivering venison sticks and fresh cuts to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I Venison.com. Use promo code MEATEATER for 20% off your order. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without your essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting in to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on then having to get washed off. 
I just run a hoodie. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. 